0: Welcome back to Club Natters, the podcast produced by Sports England, providing advice and recognition for community sports clubs. I'm Robin Cowan.
1: And I'm Glenn Moore. As promised, today we'll be discussing financial matters, specifically fundraising and managing money once you've raised it.
0: Our special guest this week, Dave Boyle, will help guide us through the key elements of fundraising, what they entail, what impacts they can make, and most importantly, how you can make the most out of them.
1: We'll also have a regular feature, Club Matters Meets. This time we're chatting with England rugby star James Haskell. To finish, we'll answer your question.
0: Remember, as ever, if you have any questions or suggestions, get in touch with us via Twitter, at Club Matters. Facebook, that's facebook.com forward slash Sport England Club Matters. Or visit our newly updated website, www.sportenglandclubmatters.com.
1: Sports clubs usually have lots of dreams and ambitions about the services and facilities they want to provide, the players they want to attract, the memories they want to create. However, the reality is without cash, not only do most of these ambitions remain dreams, simply ticking over as you are becomes difficult. Whether you want to fix a leaky toilet or install a 3G pitch, it costs money. Advertising for players costs money. Hiring pitches and halls costs money.
0: At Grassroots, there are no Russian oligarchs or sovereign wealth funds prepared to pump in the pounds. Income is reduced to two sources, the membership and what grants, either from public or private bodies, can be secured.
1: In an ideal world, sports provision would come from the public purse. That is what happens on much of the continent. I've been on sports tours there and the facilities in quite small villages are amazing. However, the UK prefers a low tax environment more akin to the United States. So councils in particular simply do not have the funds to provide community sports provision. In the US, some of the slack is picked up by private benefactors. But unfortunately, we don't really have that
0: culture here. So clubs
1: are largely on their own.
0: But we are here to help, and Dave will be giving us lots of helpful advice later. But in terms of what can be done, do you have any fundraising experiences from clubs you are and have been involved in, Glen?
1: Well, much of the fundraising has been DIY. A club will try and make a bit of cash at functions like barbecues or end-of-season dinners. There's those little lottery-type tickets I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with, where you buy a square for, say... £2. There's 25 squares on the sheet, which is enough for every player in the match to feel we ought to buy one, plus substitutes, refs or umpires. The winning prize is 20 quid. Second prize is a tenner. The club makes 20 quid a time. It's not much, but it adds up over a season. Other clubs, if they have their facilities to do so, do quiz nights, talent shows, or maybe rent out their space for events. These are often easy to do and promote, though you do have to have a proper business plan as the last thing you want is to lose money on the night. And you need to be sure of who you're renting to. You don't want to bill for repairs.
0: Every penny helps run grassroots sports clubs. And the events you've spoken about, Glenn, can also help foster the spirit within the club and bring members closer together alongside the fundraising aspect.
1: Then there's also the big stuff. A was involved with got funding from the Football Foundation for a new clubhouse. That was a big project with big results. The problem is that the Football Foundation, which is a superbly run organisation, needs to maximise its impact so they usually like to match fund projects. That means a club raising funds themselves or leveraging grants from somewhere else. Both methods tend to favour clubs in wealthy areas or sports that attract a more middle class membership, as I've involved drawing on members' own income, or lots of quite often complicated form filling and lobbying.
0: Another thing to consider is the increased use of resources online, so that means there are loads more ways to raise much needed funds. Kickstarters or crowdfunding have become very common when trying to raise money for a specific cause. Take Yeovil Town Ladies Football Club. They were told in order to keep their place in the top tier of women's football, they'd have to show they can support the team financially in stepping up to becoming a fully professional outfit. They managed to achieve this by setting up a crowdfunding page online. Now obviously this is a large scale example, but it just shows you you can think big these days.
1: A hockey club as a member wanted a new artificial pitch. They put a big chart on the wall, divided into squares. Members or families bought a square each for hundred pound. I think the plan was you would be remembered in perpetuity. Unfortunately, my kids lost interest and we didn't retain their membership, so we weren't around long enough to see if there is a donor's board or similar on the wall. But even a scheme like that still asks quite a lot of members' own pockets.
0: So, lots to think about there, and lots of questions to pose to our topic expert. <laughs> Now we'd like to welcome Dave Boyle of the Community Shares Company who's here to discuss fundraising with us. Welcome to Club Natters, Dave.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: First of all, what are Community Shares?
2: Community Shares are a form of crowdfunding which enables organisations which have networks of supporters and people in the community who support what they do and want to live in a world where the organisation's thriving are able to invest patient capital, over the long term for a small return, and it's a way of getting a cheaper form of finance for organisations who've got those networks than perhaps they might be able to get from banks or social investors. And it, But it requires you to have a business-like focus, it's not a donation it's somewhere between a donation and a loan so it works best where the organisation is looking to make a bit of a step change and maybe reorientate itself and maybe look a bit further down the road than just the next month or the next financial year and think a bit bigger about where the club's going
1: so unlike a donation, you are expected to give the money back at some point.
2: You are indeed, yeah the the, the, the aim is that the organisation repays you over time so it works a little bit like a bank deposit, a terrible bank which has got no obligation to give you the money back but if you're raising money from people who like you, who are your friends, your family people in your community, you tend not to want to let them down but if you have to let them down because the organisation is not making as much money as it hoped or it thought, then you've got the ability to have a conversation with those people and say can we reschedule can we downplay our expectations and if those people are happy because they've got a sports facility or they've got a brand new bar that they're using on a regular basis they might be more amenable to thinking well I'm already getting something back because the club I love the sport I love is going from strength to strength in my community and I'm happy that they're using my money you still want to be paid back eventually but you can sweeten the pill with tax breaks which you can get for investment which can be up to 50 percent of the value of that investment so you can put it together and it it looks like a good package and what it's really useful for i think is leveraging in other funding so most of these big capital projects where you might use community shares they tend to need a grant as well from from somebody like sport england or maybe the national federation Um, but a lot of grants and a lot of funders are getting a little bit sort of uh, more choosy about what they will fund and if you're sort of able to elevate your pitch by saying we've already raised £200,000 from our local community who are really supporting us that's going to make you out to be a little bit different to everybody else who's asking for the full amount in grant funding.
1: Yes we mentioned that earlier I know for example the Football Foundation likes to have match funding because therefore their money goes further and they can support more projects Uh, but I was sort of wondering how much do you need access to expertise to fill in the forms and so on how difficult is it?
2: It, it can be as difficult as you want to make it. So, you know, if you use the Community Shares Company, for example, or other or people who do the same sort of role as us, um, we can help you with the whole project from cradle to grave. But it's also a kind of do-it-yourself mechanism. It can be done. Um, some people called it punk finance uh, a few years back when it was used at, say, FC United of Manchester. And it can be done by ordinary people. It's just, it takes longer and it needs a little bit more confidence. But I think a lot of clubs... Um, sort of underplay what access they've got. They kind of think to themselves, oh, we we need a lawyer or we need an accountant and that's going to cost money and we don't have access to that. And I think what it can do is open you out to what you really have got in your community because a lot of clubs, I think, get a little bit stuck in their ways. They put a call out at the AGM, who wants to join our committee? Everybody puts their head down and tries not to make eye contact with anybody lest they be lumbered with the responsibility. But actually, if you're trying to get volunteers, if you can give volunteers a specific task, we want help with this and nothing else. We're not going to ask you to wash any kit. We're not going to ask you to run the line or, you know... Take a role in coaching. You're good at this, and we need that skill. So, can we get it from you? And where there aren't those networks within your club, I still think a lot of people underplay what skills they actually do deploy in their service of the club. So, even somebody who wouldn't consider themselves a financially qualified professional, if you manage lots of income and expenditure from your club, from members' subs, from the bar takings, and you can pay the brewery, all of these things about money coming in, money coming out, you're 80%, 90% of the way there to have those professional skills and so you know i think one of the things clubs could look at is rather than just taking that support from people but could they look to incentivize people to maybe get some qualifications as part of professional development it's it's something which i think is an unexplored avenue which not many clubs have really uh, explored in any great depth
1: and i guess the
2: process of acquiring those qualifications there is funding for that Yeah, because that kind of support, a lot of grant funders are now thinking, well, we've not got the big budgets to give you half a million pounds, but if you've got a project which says we're going to skill up somebody within our club to be able to do this on an ongoing basis, it's the sort of thing about you know, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day, teach him to fish and you feed him for life. A lot more grant funders are looking to teach people to fish rather than give them fish forever. And if you've got a club which is kind of thinking we'd like to go down this, I think there are more opportunities in that direction. What sort of scale of club would benefit most from this sort of thing? Um, I think the kind of clubs who are going to benefit the most are clubs who want to upscale their facilities. So if you don't have any facilities to call your own and maybe you want to buy the lease from your landlord or maybe you want to develop a clubhouse or develop a bar and a function suite, that's the that's the size of club. It's not so much about the size of the club itself, it's the club for whom that kind of ambition, everybody thinks, you know what, we could do that. If you look at that and think there's 25 of us let's just make sure we keep on on the right side of our landlord, then it's not going to be that kind of thing. But if you look at that issue and you think, yes, we could own our facilities, we could get control, we could maybe undertake an asset transfer from the local authority, we could partner with other organisations and make more compelling grant applications, then I think community shares is definitely part of the mix you should consider.
0: So those are community shares. I suppose it depends what size club we're talking about, but what are the most common sources of finance for a club?
2: Well, most clubs start from the perspective of, you know, we've got our core user base and we'll take our membership subscriptions from them. We'll take our match fees from them. You know, the, the, the sort of money you take in the course of being a sports club. And that's the sort of basic level. And then up from that, you've got the sort of varying forms of lotteries, race nights, donations which can often be social occasions dressed up as fundraising or can be fundraising dressed up as a social occasion and some clubs have gone further and they've got a facility they've got a bar they've got a room they can rent out and they earn quite a nice uh, you know money on the side from that and other clubs might have gone even further and they make more money from their facility than they do from the sports club but that's fine because there's a not-for-profit sports club they're able to recycle it and that's all part of the of the, of the beauty of what they've got and obviously charities presumably gift aid? Yeah you can get gift aid on donations, Um, there are issues about trading and classing it as gift aid because gift aid has to be for a donation which isn't coming back to the person who's given it which um, if you're earning money from a bar or or that kind of thing you you probably shouldn't be looking to try and claim gift aid on it because you're on the very edge of, of the regulations from HMRC but gift aid is the sort of thing which any sports club, especially if it's got community amateur sports club status or it is an incorporated charity then if you're not claiming gift aid then you're missing out on a massive trick
0: and we talked a little bit earlier about the case of Yeovil Town Ladies Football Club crowdfunding's become a lot more commonplace hasn't it?
2: It is, um, you know, and there's a lot of there's a. I think some people go, you know, this is nothing different. You know, anybody doing a talk on crowdfunding has to say the Statue of Liberty was potentially funded through crowdfunding because it was an appeal in the New York press, and everybody got their name for a for a penny uh, on the base of the of the uh, plinth. And yeah, to some extent, there's nothing new under the sun, and it is. Just a means of organizing the the transfer of money, but it is a little bit more than that. I think the fact that it 's usually done through digital platforms um, some clubs might look at that and think well we don't have anybody who's good at that their internet and that 's I think a warning sign because every club needs to be good at that their internet and crowdfunding can be a way for clubs to take their sort of natural fundraising proclivities and think, well, who could do a fundraising uh, on, on online for us um, are there people who perhaps maybe have a younger generation who the club has struggled to engage in in the usual race nights and lotteries and knocking on people's doors and selling tickets for for raffles and such like that doesn't appeal to a lot of people but give them a project to put a crowdfunding campaign up engage people outside of the core network of the club that's a really good opportunity to develop the skills base within the club because i think a lot of clubs um struggle to get new people involved because quite frankly the people who do the asking tend to do so with a gun against their heads. It's almost like if you don't volunteer I'm going to shoot myself because I've been doing this for 10 years and I'm exhausted, I'm burnt out and please please come and join our depressed gang of volunteers who keep the show on the road and that's not a good look and it's not something lots of people want to get engaged in but give people a discreet project, a new project to deploy their skills and where the club can't do it if these people don't. I think it can unlock a volunteering base which is maybe not there at the moment and it also crucially I think a lot of clubs sometimes uh, especially the people who clubs are going to for this kind of funding get a little bit fatigued you know it's like oh gosh let's close the let's close the curtains the person from the club has come to sell lottery tickets to us again and we bought some last month so let's pretend we're out and people can kind of go well i've already given something to you mm-hmm. but using crowdfunding networks that only works if you've got good social media presence online and a lot of clubs don't but Why not develop one? The crowdfunding campaign can be a sort of a a tipping point to move the club in a more digital and maybe a more youthful direction, reaching out to new people, which if that raises you the money, then fantastic. And that could also be the wellspring to to raising your ambitions. Because, again, you know, those people who are burnt out, they've been doing this job for years, they'll see success as the club keeping on, keeping on. And as long as they can pass on to the next generation something which is as good as what they were were given or maybe a little bit better, that's what success looked like. And that's true. But maybe with a different perspective, people with a little bit more distance and maybe a different, you know, not had those hard yards and hard years of doing that kind of work might see there's a bigger ambition. So maybe instead of moaning about the council not cutting the grass on the sports pitch, they could go, well, actually, we could create a business here and we could partner with other sports clubs and we could own this facility ourselves the people who may be running the club for many years might think well that's that's crazy talk you know we we struggle to get matches on on saturday how could we possibly do this and to some extent if you're answering those questions and you're seeing it from a kind of pessimistic point of view then maybe it's time to sort of think well maybe there's some people who could look at this differently within our network already and let's just give them a bit of uh, a bit of encouragement and just stand back and see what they can make of it
1: yeah, it does require clubs to be open to new ideas and, and younger ideas, I guess. I mean, in my experience, you yeah, know, you come to new to an organisation, maybe your kids are playing or whatever, and then you look at it and you think, well, they could do that better, or they could do that better. And then some clubs are more open than others to to new ideas and letting
2: people in. Absolutely, and it's a mindset. I think. I think a good club management committee or board or whatever it's called should always be thinking, what would somebody outside us think of us? Because you think of yourselves as doing a fantastic job, you just think of all the volunteer hours you spend. And to some extent, somebody coming along and saying, have you thought about doing this differently? With the best one in the world, that can come across as criticism. And most people in the human race are not very good at dealing with criticism perceived or otherwise.
1: Uh, I mean, this brings us on, I mean, what are the biggest problems for clubs generally in
2: terms of running their finances? I think one of the biggest challenges clubs have is is just keeping track of what they've got and what they're due to spend and where's the money. A lot of clubs might be dealing with cash-based systems and that needs lots of receipts writing and it needs lots of people to have lots of numbers in their heads and maybe those numbers aren't put down on paper at the right time, but it's all going to be fine. So, you know, on a basic level, there's there's a kind of, there's a danger of fraud or Or more more realistically people just losing bits of money and losing track of what they've got and what's due and somebody gets a bill and thinks i'll pay that next week and something you know their dog needs to see the vet and before they know it there's a demand letter which is written in red and they're starting to panic and just keeping on track of it i think is the biggest challenge and one of the things i think clubs should be looking to do is move to digital payment systems um increasingly you know i've i've got a checkbook but i couldn't quite tell you where it is in my house because I've not had to write a check and I think increasingly that's going to be the norm and even cash when the window cleaner comes around to my house I'm always embarrassed because I just don't have spare cash lying around which I can pay the window cleaner with and I'm always got IOUs from him and increasingly I think clubs who can move to a more digital based payment systems PayPal is really good for this I mean yes it costs because it takes a cut of what's paid but you've got to think of it in terms of the volunteer time it gives you and the reporting it gives you Because once you've got that money sort of on a ledger electronically, it's really easy to move it into an online platform, you know, there are plenty of accountancy packages which are really simple to use, which are geared around people who are not financial experts, there's some which are tailored for self-employed people, which whilst clubs are not self-employed people, they're very similar in terms of their accountancy skills, you know, if you're a builder. You're not an accountant and you don't want to spend time doing your books. But accountancy platforms online which are built for builders to manage their accounts are really good at helping sports clubs manage their accounts too because it's the same thing. People are involved because they love their club, they love their sport, not because they happen to be good at finance and you know, work with the grain of what's out there already.
0: Some clubs go down the route of registering as a charity. What are the benefits of that and how would a club go about doing it?
2: The main benefit of being a charity is, in the first instance, is the tax breaks. So you get exemption from corporation tax, you probably get rates relief from your local authority, um, at least 80%, maybe 100%, um, and you also get gift aid on donations which are made, and the wealthier the people giving the the donation, the more the gift aid accrues to the club. Um, And that's all really positive. The other advantage, I think, is that it um, gives confidence to grant funders and maybe local authorities who might be thinking about Transferring assets over or making substantial grant payments that the organization's got the right legal structure which protects the assets so if you've got a local authority sports ground that's probably been given to the council years back in the past to be used for the community's sporting needs forever and a day and if you've got an unincorporated not-for-profit constitution that's great for most things but it's not going to be good enough to get the asset out of the council's hands because it doesn't give them confidence that it will remain in your hands forever and a day like they've been tasked with making sure it will be so i think it can give confidence to those funders and those local authorities and it also I think the fact that you're prepared to take on the responsibility of being a charity because that does come with it you know once you are a charity you are responsible for ensuring that the organisation doesn't cease to be a charity doesn't stop doing charitable things and make sure it doesn't do any non-charitable things and if you're comfortable with making that commitment as an organisation I think it can give confidence to those funders and those authorities that you're serious about your big plans.
0: And how does a club register as a charity?
2: Well, the main thing, uh, if you're a charity, is to think about, firstly, what are your activities? Are they charitable? Are you undertaking amateur sport? Because that's the charitable purpose you're going to be likely to be registering under. So if you're having uh, any circumstances where there's representative players who are going to be paid to, to play for the first team or, or any of those teams... Um, as opposed to just getting expenses for travel and so on and so forth, um, that's something to factor in. You, you do, you are able to pay up to ten thousand pounds a year to to players and still remain as an amateur sports club. So, for a lot of clubs, that's probably going to be the long and short of it because there aren't actually that many sports for whom there's enough money to pay players more than that mm-hmm. um, in the UK. But um, so the first thing to do is to you know have a look around and see are other clubs like us also charities? And if so, have a word with them, have a look at what their objects are because the critical thing when you register as a charity is to have the right charitable objects which define what you're going to do in pursuit of being a charity. And you can look on the Charity Commission website and search for sports clubs, just type sport into the search box and you'll find lots of examples of good charitable objects which you can repurpose. Lots of people find, you know, they want to get a second opinion so within any local authority area there should be a council for voluntary service or a voluntary sector body which is working with the local authority and they should have people who they can point you towards who can give the kind of guidance on are these good charitable objects and will this pass muster with the charity commission Um, and there's also obviously lots of good stuff on the internet both with the club matters website and also through um, the charity commission itself and .gov.uk. Are there complications if you so running a bar, there are. So if you are running a bar, um, unfortunately, running a bar or a pub is not yet a charitable activity in the UK. Um, would that it would be, but um, until such time as it is, um, that would count as non-primary purpose trading, which is trading which isn't in pursuit of your normal activities. So, for example, primary purpose trading might be charging people, you know, a fair amount and a reasonable amount to pay for access to the sports club's facilities, but invite you know um, having a bar where you serve food or you can rent rooms from that's not what you're on earth to do as a charity and therefore that wouldn't count as primary purpose trading now if you are running a bar you can get away with a certain amount of non-primary purpose trading but when you start to get up to about £50,000 a year it starts to get a little bit dicey so a lot of clubs at that point might set up a trading subsidiary which will be wholly owned by the charity but as a trading subsidiary, as a company it's able to do whatever it wants and then at the end of the year all of the profits get kicked upstairs to the charity to be used for the sports club and the bar doesn't pay any tax because it's not got any profits on which to be taxed. And what's the difference between a charity and a community amateur sports club? A community amateur sports club is essentially a halfway house for smaller clubs who want the tax benefits mainly gift aid uh, which come from the charitable status but don't want the onerous responsibility of having to report to the charity commission to produce annual accounts and to notify them of who their management committee is at any given time. You're still bound to be charitable but the reporting requirements on the club are much much less onerous and so it's a good um, a good option for, for the smaller clubs um, and it was introduced about 15 years ago precisely to meet the needs of smaller clubs who were being told there's great benefits to be had from being a charity but their experience of being a charity was that you know, there were some burdens which they were having to face which really weren't necessary and were getting in the way of them doing good work in the community and with their sport.
0: So I guess the overall message here is to consider more wide-ranging or non-traditional methods of fundraising whatever size club you are.
2: I think so. I think, I think my sort of big takeaway is that um, I've been a volunteer on a committee, and it gets really hard. It's the same whether it's a PTA, whether it's a sports club. It's often a thankless task. And just keeping the wheels on um, is is an enormous effort. And that seems to be, you know, like, if that's the limit of your your vision, then that's great. Execute that vision. Do a great job of it. But if you can find the, sp- the time and space to think bigger, um, maybe you, you might do that thinking and think, actually... I think we'll stay as we are thanks very much that's absolutely fine but don't let the kind of the the place you are now and where you might like to be and the difference between those two spaces put you off because you can make the leap and it starts with those small steps and you know as Ferris Bueller said if you don't stop around to take a look once in a while you might miss it and you might miss some big opportunities um because i think there is a you know because of the financial climate because local authorities are not necessarily the landlords of 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 which they've been in the past people who look after the asset maintain it fix the roof fix the grounds they're not able to play that role anymore and either somebody else is going to have to do that role and if That's going to be somebody else. Why won't it be you? And if it's not going to be you, then who is that going to be? You know, you might not like the new landlord, so be that landlord. And there's lots of information on the topic on the Revamped Club Matters website? Absolutely. There's a really great section on on fundraising and moving into social investment more broadly, including community shares, but also looking at bonds and loans and other sort of maybe slightly scary forms of finance, which, again, you can work your way up to. It's, you, know, you can just get in at the shallow end and work towards the deep end in your own time.
1: And a reminder, you can find all that information at www.sportenglandclubmatters.com.
0: And just finally, what would be your top five tips for our listeners on how a club can stay on top of its finances and be self-financing?
2: Well, the first thing is to get to grips with your management accounts. Um, They'll tell you something about your club. It might tell you really good things, but it also might point out where there's some things lacking and how you can improve. Um, Any decent journey into thinking about finance will, if it's working properly, it will give you headaches and it will cause you to think through what kind of club you want to be and what kind of club you are. there's no such thing as a free lunch and certainly not anymore. Everybody wants something for something and the trick for you as a club is to work out is the thing what they want, something you also want and if you if that is the same, then fantastic. Um, stop and take a look around, think bigger, have an away day. Go and get past the day-to-day grind of how the kit's being washed. Have we paid the ground fees? But just think about where do we want this club to be in 10 years' time? Do we have bigger aspirations than just a steady state treading water? And finally, your strength is your existing networks. Most sports clubs are amazing institutions, the like of which, in, in the decline of church-going, sports clubs are one of those places where you find people from all walks of life. And so if you don't know who you're club members are your club parents their friends are then find out find out who's in your network and i will guarantee you will be pleasantly surprised about who's in there who some people may not been wanting to tell you who they are because they're very high powered other people might be honored to be asked but it starts with finding out what you've got and asking people this is what we need, who can help us, away from the normal, would you like to be treasurer, would you like to be secretary, and all that kind of usual way in which volunteers are recruited to the club.
0: That's fantastic. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you.
1: For today's Club Matters meets, we spoke to England Rugby Union international James Haskell, now with Northampton Saints.
0: As well as playing with WASPs and earning 61 international caps for his country, James competed for leading teams in Japan, New Zealand and France. He's become an internationally acclaimed athlete and professional rugby player and alongside his athleticism and commanding physique, James is now one of the most recognisable rugby players of his generation.
1: Haskell has also started a fitness brand called James Haskell Health and Fitness. In my younger days I recall rugby players being known for their drinking habits rather than their awareness of nutrition. But I guess with the advent of professionalism, players' behaviour has changed beyond all recognition. The game is so demanding and dynamic now, players simply would not be able to cope at the top level under the old ways. The longevity of James's career suggests he's looked after himself, both in terms of what he eats and how he exercises.
0: We caught up with James a few weeks ago and started off by asking how old he was when he joined his first rugby club and what was it called?
3: Uh, I was five years old. Uh, my mum lied about my age and signed me up um the under sevens, um, and it was made in her rugby club.
0: What do you remember about the club, the atmosphere, culture, people you met there, that sort of thing?
3: Uh, well, I mean, first I think my mum f- thought it was a perfect crime. She could get me out of the house, um, you know, not causing trouble. Um, and my dad could take me and my little brother down there. Um, my dad could have a beer on the weekends, as licensing laws were a little bit different back in the day. Um, and yeah, I mean, obviously the club was incredible, very kind of community-orientated, orient- um, loads of little kids running around, kind of just having fun, not really sure what they were doing. Um, you know, a lot of obviously characters, you know, going up into the to the bar after and getting a you know, pint of squash and, and you know, buying a, a a chomp. And there used to be 10p, now they're about a pound. Um, and kind of just getting involved in all that kind of stuff, having a, you know, a, a hot dog or whatever, and, and kind of just meeting people and making friends. And yeah, just, just kind of being real really part of the community.
0: And how important was this grassroots introduction to sport in your personal development and in becoming a professional athlete?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know club rugby is uh, you know massively important in, in in you know in sort of my development because you know I played with them since I was five to eighteen. I still played for them while I was at school. You know, some weekends I'd play two games, which was which was madness. I think I'd. I'd be in a wheelchair now if I tried to do that, you know, in the modern sort of world. Um, but I think it's, um, you know, it was incredible. I think obviously as well, meeting lots of different characters, playing with different people. Um, you know, I, I kind of always played my rugby at, at school, um, and then obviously, be, you know, having that as a secondary thing, playing with different players, you know, helped you develop, seeing different things going and traveling and away games and understanding what kind of club rugby was about. You know, I got into kind of professional rugby from the age of kind of sixteen, really uh, involved with WASP. but I still you know, played for, for Maid had still had that kind of involvement that kind of kept me grounded uh, and showed me kind of the traditional side of rugby. Um, so, you know, I, I'm kind of eternally grateful for them.
0: What is your fondest memory of sport from when you were younger? Uh, well, there's a couple of memories. I think my, my, you know, my
3: first one was my first ever sort of training session when I, um, I got past the ball and wasn't necessarily sure what I was doing. And I kind of <laughs> run around one bloke, side sidestepped another one, and ran around and I scored. And it was only when a parent looked down at me <laughs> And called me a silly boy that I realised I'd scored behind my own try line, but I think also for me, you know, going and playing, you know, being at school, going back there and playing um, in the kind of the Colts Cup, they play, you know, played uh, London Irish one year and Bath another year, and kind of we beat, uh, I think we beat London Irish, and obviously that was massive for the club because we, you know, they were kind of professional, we were we were amateurs, so that was a big kind of big occasion for us.
0: Is there a particular volunteer or club member from anywhere along your journey that made a real impact in your life? And is there anything you'd like to say to them?
3: Um, well, there's actually been a couple of um, a couple of guys who, who've been kind of um, you know great uh, for, for me. But one guy in particular, who sadly passed away, actually was um, a guy called Gordon McDonald, who was at Maidenhead. You know, he was my coach. Um, you know, for a number of years, he was uh, always keen to get us along. And, um, you know, always kind of, you know, was very complimentary and supportive. And the other kind of coaches that worked with him um, were, were, were superb as well, really. So my whole kind of, you know, club rugby years kind of from almost from 15 to kind of 18 were some of our most enjoyable. And we had some of our best kind of tournaments and, and, and trips, you know, with these guys.
0: Any plans on volunteering your time in the future and giving back to rugby?
3: I do quite a lot of stuff already. Uh, I've done a few bits and pieces with with Maidenhead. Um, you know, I, I I get asked to you know, do coaching things and after dinner stuff all the time with people. So I try to to do as much as I can. Obviously, it's, it's not always easy because of you know being you know about sort of playing and commercial stuff we have to do. Um, but I, but I always try, and I think it's massively important.
0: And just finally, is there any message you would like to give to those volunteers who help run thousands of sports clubs up and down the country?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would just say, look, you're doing an incredible job. Uh, you know, it's really valued. I think rugby is such a unique sport that helps, you know, people uh, of any kind of age, culture, creed mix together, uh, learn some valuable lessons, uh, play a great game, enjoy us, you know, that people enjoy. And I think it's important to keep, you know, a lot of the traditions, a lot of the touring and a lot of the kind of fun bits about rugby alive. And I think they do a great job. And I would just say thank you.
0: James, thank you for your time. Now for the part of the programme where you get the chance to help each other, asking and answering questions about community sport. First, this month's question is from Clibury Archers in Shropshire.
1: As a club, we attract juniors and seniors. But why is it so hard to engage 15 to 24-year-olds in sport?
0: If you can help the archers of Clibury, let us know on the usual addresses, Twitter, at Club Matters, Facebook, that's facebook.com forward slash Sport England Club Matters or www.sportenglandclubmatters.com.
1: Last month, Helen Barbell, a weightlifting club from Sheffield, asked, What do you think are the three biggest challenges that small clubs face? What are the quick and simple solutions to these?
0: We had several replies to this when it came to identifying the challenges. Here's a flavour of them.
1: Gornal Ladies FC from the West Midlands said, Getting people to volunteer, whether it be coaches, day activities or committee members. Player recruitment, especially girls funding.
0: Crichton RUFC of Carlisle said, Raising funds getting people interested in playing rugby.
1: Kent Sports said, player recruitment was the biggest thing to come out of our recent club survey. Volunteer levels and the quality of facilities were next, followed by attracting youngsters, then sponsorship, budgets and financial pressures.
0: Tony Malika got in touch and said having to travel too far to attend coaching and other courses, not being able to sustain the expensive cost, so missing out and in a way not growing as a club.
1: And we also heard from Claire Bruce, who said funding for coaching qualifications lack of volunteers.
0: Unfortunately as you'll gather from those replies and probably know yourself it's easier to identify problems and solve them but with a majority being based around finances and volunteers we hope we've managed to answer some of your questions in this and our previous podcast which can be found on iTunes or on our website. If you have any additional answers for us please do get in touch.
1: That's all for this podcast, except to say a big thanks to James Haskell for all his time talking us through the early days of what became an outstanding career.
0: Another big thank you to our expert on fundraising, Dave Boyle. I do hope what you heard was useful.
1: Thanks to everyone who's sent in any questions.
0: And thank you to you, the audience, for listening.
1: Remember, you can contact us on Twitter at Club Matters, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Sport England Club Matters, or our revamped website, www.sportenglandclubmatters.com. From me, Glenn Moore.
0: And from me, Robin Cowan.
1: Thanks for listening.